0: So we come to Revelation, Revelation 1 and 2. Now, in these talks, I, I don't want to give exposition, as it were, but more to try to bring out a few devotional points. And yet, I, I suppose I have to present some kind of structure of my understanding of, of the book um, on which, as it were, to hang those, those devotional points. Well, it's quite clear, especially from Revelation chapter 6, That this book is absolutely full of connection back to the Olivet prophecy. Um, You see this, uh, as I say, particularly clearly um, when you come to to the seals, etc., in Revelation 6 uh, uh, and 7. You can uh, look at my my stuff and and see the the list of all those connections, and I don't really want to go through them now. My point is that Revelation is an extension of the Olivet Prophecy in more detail. But what was the Olivet Prophecy about? Well, its initial application was very clearly to the destruction of the Temple in AD AD 70. And so, I do think therefore that on that basis, and there's a number of other reasons, but I think on that basis we can say that Revelation was given before AD 70 in order to strengthen the believers for what they were going to go through. And <clears throat> it does this in, in a number of a number of ways. There's continually in Revelation a lot of reference to what's going on up in heaven, a lot of language of, of angels doing this, that and the other. And I think the idea is that everything on earth, be it individual believers, groups of ecclesias The opposition, systems of opposition to God's people, the Roman Empire, whoever was persecuting God's people at any point in time, they have their representative angel in the court of heaven. And that's why you read here in Revelation 1 and 2 about these angels of the churches and this opening vision here in Revelation 1. I think quite clearly uh, we are to understand that these ecclesias had their representative there in heaven. And so the comfort was that whatever was going on on earth in the lives of individuals, even in the awful persecution that they were experiencing, this was all noticed by God. And that the events here on earth are playing themselves out, as it were, there in, in heaven. And of course it, it comes to, to the, fi- the finality of the intervention of God in, in human affairs and the establishment of his kingdom. Now of course this didn't happen in AD seventy the book seems to imply that when the system that was persecuting the believers in the first century, which was Rome and also the uh, the Jewish temple system, when that was destroyed then the kingdom of God would come, but that didn't happen. So I think this is the same as what you've got in the Olivet Prophecy, that yes, it is applicable to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, but quite clearly that prophecy has been deferred and possibly been reapplied in its application to the last days, to the time of the actual coming of Christ. Whatever the preconditions were that God had, it could have been the repentance of Israel, it could have been the the faithfulness or spirituality of the the Christian believers, the gospel should go into all the world and then shall the end come, But whatever those preconditions were in God's purpose, they were not met. And therefore, there was this uh, delay. And I think you see that all through the Bible, really. Uh, Jonah and Nineveh is a classic example. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed, but it was not, because they repented. So there is this sort of open-endedness to God's plan and, and purpose. But of course, he that shall come will come, in the final analysis. And so the book of Revelation is written, and here is where we can get comfort. It's written for the strengthening and encouragement of of believers, of those who are going through uh, whatever they are going through at the hands of persecuting systems to see that this too shall pass and that in the end, God has a purpose, and that even if we can't quite understand all these visions, etc., the point is that there is a movement of purpose onwards that will be resolved finally in in the return of of Jesus to the earth. And I think some of the difficulties that we have in understanding the, uh, the, the prophecies are because Actually, the final sequence of events or the final nature of events leading up to the Lord's return and immediately around the time of his return, they are to some degree fluid and open-ended because there are all kinds of different possible preconditions that have to be met. And if they are met, then uh, sequence A happens. If some of them are met but not others, then another sequence happens, etc. And that is why any attempt to work out a definitive chronology of latter-day events, I think, is is doomed to failure. And this raises the whole question of the purpose of prophecy. Jesus said, in relation to prophecy about his own death, a prediction, if you like, about his own death and the events around that, that I'm telling you this, so that when it comes to pass, you may believe. In other words, prophecy is not intended uh, to kind of help people in that sense ahead of the event so that we can say aha now i knew this was happening yes i knew this was going to happen because it's written in the bible and i happen to understand it correctly i don't think that has uh, very often happened And the point is that we who go through the final events immediately prior to the Lord's return will see Revelation just opening up in front of our eyes. It will all be absolutely obvious. So, yes, I am suggesting that we have got here ultimately an outline of the final three and a half years or so before the return of Christ, the time of, of tribulation which is spoken of uh, in, in various parts of, of the scriptures in the same way as the initial intention I think was that this described the three and a half years immediately prior to AD 70 to the actual destruction of the temple when there was that time of trouble in, in Judea which could have been resolved in the return of Christ But it was not because certain preconditions were not met. Many years ago, I was no more than a teenager. Brother Jim Broughton, who's been asleep many years, said to me in his uh, later life, he said, Duncan, the the key to understanding Revelation is to understand its structure. And that echoed in my mind for many years. And I'm grateful to Jim for putting me on the... uh, on the right track I think on the right track here his point was that if you go through Revelation there's so many allusions to the Jewish feasts and reading Paul Vines's book on Revelation which is online uh, for free I believe um, he, he figures the same thing out that there's continual references and allusions to the various uh, three main Jewish feasts of Passover, of Tabernacles and uh, and Pentecost. And if you go through the, the book with those allusions in mind, you can see that actually we have a number of cycles of those feasts all up. You've, you would have almost a chronological explanation, uh, uh, outline let's say, of three and a half years. So this could have been the situation in AD 70, in the run up from AD 66 to to 70 now it's been pointed out that reading Josephus and particularly his his book The Wars of the Jews um, a lot of the descriptions here in particularly Revelation 6 to 9 of the situation uh, in Judea at that time are described almost in the same words as what you've got here in, in Revelation 6 to 9 so, clearly, this started to have a literal fulfillment in the first century, but, as I say, Jesus did not come when the uh, Jewish system that was persecuting the early Christians uh, crumbled, and neither did the power of Rome, I think, finish in the way that, in the dramatic way that the later chapters of Revelation it would. That's not to mean that Bible prophecy didn't come true, it's simply that the whole thing was deferred until our last days. And all these different elements, such as the, the persecuting power of God's people, these must have some other interpretation. But I believe that the book is, in its essence, still to be fulfilled in its future sense. When in the final time of tribulation before the Lord returns now you may say well so you're saying that Jesus isn't coming back right now we are to live our lives as if we expect his return imminently that is almost part of the gospel that we are to live as if we expect him to come back but I don't think that because we expect him to come back and want him to come back immediately that that should mean that we are somehow uh, dishonest intellectually in our interpretation of prophecy in other words forcing world events into what we perceive to be prophecies of the last days that has been done particularly in our community for many years for, for you know, hundreds of years uh, in a sense people have been trying to do this and all the time people say yes so therefore that means the Lord is coming right now certainly you know, any year now, any moment now and it doesn't happen because they're going about it the wrong way they're trying to force those world events into some kind of predictive scheme as if the book of Revelation for example or any bible prophecy is there outlining a series of events that's got to happen and now whoa it's all happened so therefore Jesus is going to come back right now now in all honesty I cannot say that I see the world situation as of right now Uh, fulfilling the whole scenario as I perceive it in in Revelation Uh, I say that quite openly and up front and when these things really begin to happen then, then the prophecy will speak and Daniel talks about that, that at the time of the end there will be a great upsurge in understanding and I think that that is specifically in the final tribulation in these final three and a half years now that's my outline understanding then of the, uh, of the book but then we're here in Revelation 1 and 2 and we've got these letters, seven letters that are written to seven churches and yet clearly they connect with the rest of the book in the sense that the themes of persecution of faithfulness, the promised blessing of the faithful this kind of language continues throughout the rest of the book So then we are asked, we who live in the latter day period are I think asked to see ourselves in these seven churches, seven being a number of uh, completeness, it's as if this is kind of the the body of Christ. And we are to see their basic failures and temptations and tendency to failure as being particularly relevant for us in, in our last days. Now, notice the radical language that is used about the world around those people. The Jewish and Roman authorities are called dragons, whores, etc. Um, this was all radical language. And it's been pointed out, the book of Revelation was, uh, would, would have been illegal, really, uh, an illegal book in the first century because it was so critical of the, the cult of the, the emperor. And in fact, the whole New Testament is rather like that. If you just uh, turn back a page to, to Jude, verse 25, where Jude says, it uh, talks about our Lord and only Saviour, Jesus. Well, we might read that quite painlessly. But the Caesars were called Saviour. That's how Josephus uh, addressed Vespasian. That's our only Saviour. Caesar is Lord. That was the cry of the Roman Empire and uh, to refuse to do that to accept Caesar as Lord was punishable by by death so when Jude 25 says but to us there is but one Lord Jesus and one Saviour he's getting at the imperial uh, cult very clearly and this made Christianity a a radical and, and dangerous group of people to belong to And so although we might consider that we are so lucky that we don't have to live in that situation, at least in many, many countries, in reality, that is how the world is. That actually the call to be truly in Christ and not of this world is equally radical. Later on in Revelation, we're going to read that the capital of the beast system, which was Rome, is uh, spoken of as being in the wilderness. Whereas, in the eyes of uh, first century Roman citizens, Rome was perceived as the center of a great cosmopolitan uh, kind of metropolis. And Rome is, of course, called a whore. This is absolutely radical. And the whole prophecy is given, chapter 1, verse 10, he says, I was in spirit on the Lord's day. Now, there was a day in the Roman calendar when all the Roman citizens had to go to the local temple and declare Caesar is Lord. That was called the Lord's Day. So on that very day, when John was supposed to be worshipping Caesar as Lord, he's giving a vision of how basically Caesar is not, in fact, Lord at all. And this, as I say, is the radical core that that we have. The other thing is that Jesus is especially identified with his people we've made him our Lord and he responds to that so when John hears the voice of Jesus and turns to look at him we're sort of led this is uh, verse 12 of chapter 1 we're sort of uh, expecting in a sense to, to to see him see Jesus he turns to see the voice that spoke to me but having turned I saw seven golden candlesticks the symbol of the churches and in the midst of them, there was the Son of Man. So then, Jesus is his body. He is his church. It's like he says, I'm the true vine. He doesn't say, I, I'm the, the trunk and you're the branches. He is the whole thing. And he therefore is especially manifest in, in us. So notice also the great theme of judgment in Revelation. That Jesus appears as the judge of the seven Ecclesias, verse 14 of chapter 1, right there and then. There's this vision of him there, with the hair white as white wool, white as snow, eyes as a flame of fire, feet like under burnished brass, etc. as the voice of a multitude. This is very much Daniel 7 and Daniel 10, about the final judgment, the day of judgment. And yet it's being applied here to the first century, to how Jesus is right now, Our judge. And we need to remember that. But it's not as if God's looking the other way. And when Jesus comes back. Oh yeah Duncan. Yeah Duncan. He's the yeah right. And they sort of open the book. And have a look. And weigh it all up. No. We are standing right now. Before his judgment. So then. There's elements in all the experience of these seven churches which is relevant to, to us as the last generation or people living also at the end of an era which I think we, we can safely say we, we are. This one thing, Revelation 2 verse 4, he says, I have something somewhat against you because you've left your first love, or agape. Now these people in Ephesus were throwing out those that are evil, branding them as liars, and for my name's sake you have laboured. But I have somewhat against you because you've left your first agape, your first love. Now in fact Jesus is described as having somewhat against six of these seven ecclesias. He had somewhat against one Ecclesia because they allowed prostitution, believe it or not, to go on within the Ecclesia. But the same rubric is used here about the letter, uh, in this letter to the Ephesians. That I have somewhat against you because you left your first agape. In other words, to lack true love, the agape love, you know, as I have loved you. That is as bad as allowing prostitution to go on in the Ecclesia. Now, Jesus also says elsewhere that the love of many in the last days shall become cold. And Paul talks about this to the Thessalonians, that there would be a lack of love. Jesus talks about beating the fellow servant just before he returns. And we live, as Paul says in Timothy, that we're going to be living in a world in the last days when what he calls natural affection has gone out of the window. When true love is really rare, and who doubts that we are exactly living in that situation? Another um, thought that uh, that I'd like to to share with you, uh, just from here in Revelation uh, two, verse ten, about the open-ended nature of God's purpose. He says. I'm reading here from the RV uh, RV margin uh, that the devil is going to throw some of you into prison that that you may be tried. You may have tribulation ten days. It's as if this is a a possibility. The whole thing about will we suffer in the last days or not is to some degree. Again, open ended, because it depends to what degree we have spiritually matured. Because if we are the last generation that's going to meet Jesus and will be the only generation that never dies, then it follows that we are going to have to be especially prepared for his coming. And that's why there will be this tribulation, I think, in the last days. But for those who have, as it were, matured anyway, there is the implication that they may not have to go through it. See Revelation 3 verse 10, Because you kept the word of my patience, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, that hour which is to come upon the whole world, to try them that dwell upon the earth, to uh, test them that dwell upon the earth. So there's a possibility that This may not have to happen for us. And you bring Isaiah 26 into play. Come my people. uh, Enter into your chambers for a little time. Until the indignation is overpassed. As if there is going to be some uh, preservation of God's people. From this time of tribulation. But it it all depends if we keep the word of his patience. That's why Revelation 2 verse 10. You may have tribulation. 10 days, there is this open-endedness to the whole thing and so what are we to, to make of this really in the context of the breaking of bread, in the context of our recollection of the Lord's suffering, well the suffering of Jesus on the cross is another theme that you get running through the whole book the lamb as it had been slain They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. All the time, these suffering people in the brethren and Sisters, in the run-up to AD 70, were being asked by this vision to focus themselves, no matter what was going on around them. Persecution by the Jews, by the Romans, etc., being told if you don't call Caesar Lord, if you say that Jesus is your only Lord and Saviour, you are to the death, all through all this, and all the worry and nervousness and anxiety that goes with those kind of situations, all the way through it, they were to be focused on the fact that Jesus had trodden this way before, that he had suffered at the hands of the Romans and, and the Jews. That no matter what was to be done to God's people on earth, he in heaven had already been through that. And their focus was to be upon him. All the references to Jesus as the Lamb, <clears throat> which is, a, a, you could say, one of the uh, favorite titles of Jesus throughout Revelation. The Lamb. I mean, this again is a sacrificial idea. The references, of course, to the, the Lamb of Passover that was slain. And the blood of the Lamb. All the time, we are having the idea of the crucified, saving Jesus brought before us. And um, okay, wherever we are in the prophetic program, the point is that each of us are going through all kinds of trauma. And uh, if you think that uh, maybe you're not, well, God wants you in His kingdom, and. He's only got, if you like, a very short space of time to prepare you for that kingdom. And so, therefore, he has to work very intensively with us to prepare us for that eternity. And so, we are going to go through hard times. None of us are going to coast through or drift through this. We are supposed to pick up our cross daily and follow him. And so, all the time, there is this focus upon the lamb, the blood of the lamb, his sufferings, giving perspective and, and meaning to the events in our lives here on earth. And that's exactly why we've come here to break bread. To, as it were, through the physicality of this physical bread and physical wine. To, in terms of physical symbolism, to, to focus ourselves upon him. But this is just for a moment, uh, as we do it, let's say, once a week. But the essence, of course, is to live a life. Focused upon him who is now in heaven, the lamb that had been slain, who is now in heaven, who really walked this way before.